You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. And so what we're, we're doing today is we're continuing a series that we have entitled A Theology of Giving. So... It's one of those topics that uh, most of us probably don't get super excited about unless you have that gift of generosity. And there are some of us in the room, there, there is actually a spiritual gift of generosity where there are some who just, that's what jacks them up is to give, right? And sometimes those folks would just give themselves into the poorhouse if they continue to live that way. But no different than when somebody has a gift of preaching, you could, you could do that too often even. And so uh, just an acknowledgement on the front edge that there are some who probably would enjoy a series like this uh, more than others. And yet at the same time, we recognize if you've been with us for any course of time, this is the first time we've done a series like this in nine years. And the reason for that is, is kind of as I've been saying, and then as, as Donnie has said too, Pastor Donnie said last week, uh, I think he said it very well, just echoing what our hearts are here is that we want to speak from God's Word um, to, the, to the way that we, we live, right? To the way that we worship God. And worship really is about the, the, the way that I think about um, what I want deep down inside my heart and then how I then behave based upon how I'm thinking and what I want. So that's really kind of a, a phrase that helps to capture the idea of worship. When it comes to worship, it's not music. Music is something we sing as an expression of our worship, right, of God. Um, yet what worship is, is really the way that I express what I want based upon what I'm thinking. So trying to kind of capture that holistic view of worship is where we've been at. That's been the aim of, of what we're doing. And so this is week three. Um, week three, we're going to focus on a number of different texts, so it's going to be a bit of a train ride, you might say, uh, through the scenic hills and the byways of the New Testament in terms of uh, this concept of the tithe. Everybody go, <gasps> and it's like, when you hear that word tithe, it's like, oh, it's a nasty word. You really have to talk about that today, preacher. Could we talk about something else? And here's the thing: as I was uh, preparing for this this week, I I, I often um, have heard people saying, "You've probably heard it too, maybe even said it yourself." Um, I've often heard people say that the New Testament really doesn't talk about tithing, um, or or I, maybe a different variation of that is that Jesus really didn't speak about tithing. You hear somebody say those things and. Uh, typically, I, I would say, and this might sound harsh, but the, I, I think that those kinds of uninformed statements, so there's a little bit of sarcasm there, um, those are statements that I think are highly uninformed, or, or, or here's another harsh one, I just think they're a really lame attempt on somebody's behalf who's probably trying to justify a belief that God does not expect us to tithe. Oftentimes, there's a foundational view or a foundational belief in their minds that uh, the law from the Old Testament is now null and void. No need to pay attention to it. Might as well just unhitch yourself from that old thing. Um, actually, Andy Stanley said that. 
And, uh, and there's a reason why in his church they don't even preach the Bible on many Sundays in a row. Look it up on YouTube, you'll find him saying that. Um, so, I've heard these things. I think that's kind of where it comes from. I, I also, um, I, I, I don't think this is going out on a limb to say that I, I, I think that when I come across this idea, when, when somebody says this, that the Jesus nor the New Testament actually talk about tithing, I think it at times can stem from uh, a desire deep down inside of the heart, okay? It's where desires flow out of is our heart. I think oftentimes when people say something like that, it, it stems out of a desire to not only dismiss the Old Testament law, but to then at the, at the same time kind of minimize, make smaller or, or forget about um, our neglect um, when, when it comes to money management or, or wealth. Um, the reality um, if you do a study, I, you'll find that I think Jesus and the New Testament talks about wealth quite often. Quite often. And I think Jesus, more than any other New Testament character, talked about wealth um, more than you would, you would expect. Um, so, all that to say, by way of introduction, I, I do think... Um, this kind of thinking, this kind of behavior, this, this kind of thought process when it comes to the whole, oh, Jesus and the New Testament, they don't talk about tithing, so we won't need to talk about tithing. I think it's rooted in a very careless reading of God's Word. And I don't want to be careless with God's Word, and I, I, I would hope and think and believe that all of us here are in that same place. We don't want to be careless with God's Word when it comes to this kind of a topic. And, and the, reality, the reality is this. The New Testament and Jesus actually do talk about tithing. Imagine that, right? Imagine that. Um, the creator of our wealth actually does talk about tithing from our wealth, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. So I want you to think with me for a few minutes about New Testament tithing. Here's something that I came across um, this week as I kind of dove into my study and, and I would uh, submit it to you as something that's interesting to look up and just to kind of get a frame of reference. Here's the thing. In the New Testament, there are three Greek words. You want me to uh, make myself look like I know what I'm doing? Here's the three Greek words. I'm going to read them off my page because I couldn't tell you from memory. But it makes me sound cool if I can tell you what the Greek words are, right? At least you know I've done my work. I don't have letters after my name, but here's the words. Apodicatu. It's one word. Apodicatu. And then second word you find is dikatos. The third one is dikatu. These are the Greek words. New Testament written in Greek, primarily. Old Testament written in Hebrew. So in the Greek language, those are the three words that show up all over the New Testament that are translated into these kinds of phrases. Giving a tenth, collecting a tithe. Collecting a tenth, giving 10% or paying a tenth. Now, here's the other fascinating thing when you find out that those are basically the three Greek words, some variation of them that can make their way out into those phrases um, in the New Testament. Who wants to take a guess on how many times those words show up in the New Testament? <coughs> At least once. That's actually a really safe answer. It's really good. <laughs> I really admire you, Will, um, 
for the safety of your... They show up in the New Testament no less than 10 times. Now, I don't know. I, I love the fact that God in his sovereignty does some really funny things when it comes to numbers. And there's actually a book called Numbers. And the Bible, I mean, just uh, 10 times the word for 10th shows up. Very fascinating. Now, uh, so, so 10 times uh, in the New Testament, um, three different authors, three different men. Um, so let me just reinforce this quick to uh, give us a frame of reference. Three Greek words. You don't need to know what they are. It doesn't make you any smarter, trust me, because I will forget what those words are when we walk out. I don't even remember them now. Do you? No, I don't get to me. But there's three of them, and you can look them up in a concordance and check me. Um, there's three Greek words for the tithe or the tenth. They appear how many times? Ten times. Um, how many authors? Three. One very important topic mentioned ten times with a bunch of heart application in the midst of it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into these passages. We're going to do a quick flyby, if you will, of, uh, of what the New Testament says um, when these words are used. And I kind of want to frame them this way. I want to frame everything that we talk about today around three questions that I think would help to kind of drive to the heart issues that we have when it comes to giving, especially the tithe. Those three questions are this, what do I love the most, what do I trust the most, and who or what do I believe is superior? Let me say it again, I'm going to say it a different way because I said it wrong the first time. Who or what do I love the most, who or what do I trust the most, and who or what do I believe is more superior in my life? I want you to look with me first at Matthew chapter 23. This is the first book of the New Testament. And so if you kind of turn almost to the center of the Bible, well, not quite, because it's more like there's, there's where Matthew 23 is for me, okay? If you would turn to Matthew 23, <coughs> and we're just going to read verse 23. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, woe to you. Now, interestingly, when you're reading this word woe, I was reminded of some seminary work that I was doing last year when I had to interpret what does this three-letter word woe mean? Is it like, whoa, hold the horses? Here's the funny thing. There are some prosperity preachers out there whose names I don't need to name today because you guys have heard them far too many times who have a very lengthy video about all their private jets and their golden faucets and their... And when they interpreted this word, woe, they interpreted it as, oh, slow down and listen to God. And I was like, holy smokes. Unbelievable. And at the end, of course, they asked for your money so they could go buy more jets. Blew me away. Jesus says, woe, which actually means cursed. Okay. Not blessed. <laughs> it's a curse. So, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Who's he talking to? Religious people. Pharisees were known to be the guys that got the practice right all the time. Scribes were known to be the guys who taught the Bible right all the time. So perfect embodiment of a scribe or a Pharisee. <laughs> Pharisees and scribes today are, it's us. We love our Bibles and uh, we love to make sure we get our behavior right. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, he says. Why? For you tithe, there's that word tithe, 
mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Man, fascinating. Uh, turn with me now to uh, the Gospel of Luke. A few pages over to your right in your Bible. Luke 11. I want to look there as well because uh, it's kind of the same passage recorded by a different author. First was Matthew, second is Luke, right? And uh, I just want, to, I want you to see the slight nuance between the two different authors' recounting of what Jesus says. There's no contradiction. What it does, here's what I love about the Gospels. The Gospels always have a tendency to add to the picture and give you a fuller picture of what was taking place. I love that. So notice some of the changes here, the differences, but also notice just some of the solidarity. Uh, that's a big word for unity. Okay, similarity. This is Luke 11, 42. Listen to what Jesus says according to Luke. Again, same setting, same scenario. But woe to you Pharisees. Slow the heck down. No, that's not right, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying slow down. Cursed are you once again. Woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice. And what's the additional thought here? the love of God. That's something different from what we read previously. Now you have a more complete thought that you might look to when you're thinking about what Jesus said to these men. You neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Fascinating when you look at those two, right? When you look at these two references by these two different authors, what do you see? You see that, that these two references point to the very same conflict, right, between Jesus and these religious leaders. And what's the issue Jesus is trying to get after here? What's, what's the heart issue that's going on? The issue here is that God's people in these verses were more focused on what? Spices. They were more focused on spices than they were focused on loving God as their Redeemer through their obedience. It's fascinating. Commentaries would tell you, historical logs would tell you that these guys would sit around all day and debate these finite little grains of spices. I just see them going in and grab them off their wives' spice racks and being like, well, how about this one? This is really small. How much should I give of that? And they're neglecting the massive, weightier issues of the law. The sense that you get here is that God's people here, when Jesus is confronting, they're spending a lot of energy on tithing tiny things while they're neglecting the big things. I mean, the law in the Old Testament was very clear on what they were to tithe. Very clear. In their desire to get it just right, they actually neglected the bigger things while focusing on these tiny things. But the reality is what they were doing is they were tithing from the spice rack, okay? Instead of just simply tithing on the grain and the oil and the wine and the firstborn animals that God had actually instructed them to do in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Their, their, their love for tithing spices led them to neglect the practices of what? Caring for the poor, extending mercy to their enemies, 
and living in loving faithfulness to the God who had redeemed them from Satan, sin, and death. This is what was taking place. Then they neglected the weightier matters of following God because they loved, I think, their spices more than they loved God. Now, that's a, that's a really blanket statement. Did they really love their spices more than they loved God? Yes, in a sense. They loved the appearance of what they did with their spices more than they loved God. It's probably a more full, nuanced way to say it, but it's easier to remember. It's a catchy, sticky phrase if you just say, hey, they loved their spices more than they loved God, and that should remind you that what they actually loved was what they did with those tiny, minute little things. Funny, if you go back to the Matthew text in 23, 23, and you look at verse 24, you'll see that they'll say something along the lines of, hey, you're straining out gnats while you're swallowing camels. In the Old Testament, both were impure things that you should not touch. And so in their, um, in, in their desire to appear as though they were holier than thou, they would actually take a, a certain kind of a cloth and put it over their drink glass as they poured their drink into it, especially the wine. You know, they drank wine, whether you think it was alcoholic or not. I really don't give a rip, but at the end of the day, what they were doing was they were pouring their wine through this little cloth to strain out the gnats, these itty-bitty tiny little things. And they, they, they made a big show of it. While all the while they're eating camels. So they were known for focusing on these little things that took away from the big things. And what Jesus is doing here is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. In some regard, we could say, practically speaking, by way of implication, tithing is really a small thing. The bigger thing is coming out of tithing, how are we doing it taking care of the poor? How are we doing it walking in faithfulness to God? How are we doing it walking in mercy? And, and, and the interesting thing is the way that Jesus kind of sets this up is like, hey, if you're not even tithing, you're probably no good at these things. But here's the other thing you could say. You may be really good at tithing, and you could still suck at all these things too. It's really convicting. <laughs> when you think of it, it's like, man, I can't get ahead anywhere. Like, can I strain for Nat, stop eating camels, don't drink, don't smoke, don't do, don't date girls who do, and tithe from my spice rack. Like you just start working through this list, so I'm like, how can I get this right so I can feel good about myself, right? I don't want you to miss the fact that what Jesus doesn't do in these two verses is he does not instruct God's people to stop tithing. Now, if Jesus, I would assume, as the God of the universe, had decided, hey, all the Old Testament stuff, now, null and void, you can unhitch yourself from that stuff, baby, because we're in this New Testament thing. If that was Jesus' intent, I would think he would have said so. So I'd say somebody like Andy Stanley, uninformed, unfaithful. I reject what he says, right? Because Jesus didn't say that. In fact, the way this is set up is it's almost like, hey, you, know, you guys actually did a really good job. <laughs> good on you for doing that bad on you for missing the more important things. It, you get a sense, it's like, again, if he's arguing from lesser to greater, it's like, yeah, your, your training wheels on your bike of generosity, your tithing, good deal. Uh, you know, your, your bike of trying to please God and, and love God the way that you should, eh, you need some help. That's the sense that you get, that this is beginner stuff. That's the sense that I get. Now, that's hard because I think I followed the Lord for like, three or four years or so before tithing became a topic for me, before somebody came to me and was like, hey, man, I want to disciple you in this and mentor you in this. And I was like, what? 
man, like I, I made $4,000 this month and you want me to give $400 to the, what? That was crazy. It took a while. There's absolutely no textual evidence here. None whatsoever that Jesus is dismissing God's people from obeying the Old Testament law. In fact, again, I think, I think Jesus makes it clear that we ought to obey this law regarding tithing without neglecting the law regarding caring for the poor or extending mercy or being faithful to God that's an extension. This is an extension of our love for God. If you, if you and I really get the fact that he is our redeemer, right? Like we are sinful and broken. He came and he redeems us and he saves us. Then the, what is to come out of us is a love for our Savior. And this is one of those ways that we extend that love to God. So the issue in these verses continue to come back to what or who do I love the most? Do I, do I love the appearance that I got all my finances together more than being faithful to God in this? Do I, do I love the, the idea, the concept that I could wear some nicer clothes if I just cut God out of what he actually asked for? Or do, do, do I love the concept that man, if I'm no longer living in debt, I'm more secure? then I, I'm placing my trust and my love. I love the idea that I have some quote-unquote security. And I, I, why would I want to trade that momentary earthly security for the security that I have in Jesus? Like, well, why would I not want to extend my love for the eternal security that he gives me in the way that I worship him with my tithing? So that this is what happens when we're getting after the heart issue of what do I love the most? I mean, there's a lot of things I love. There's a few things I'd love to do to my Harley that would be really awesome, okay? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Talking to a guy the other day that just got one and only had six miles on it. Just the break-in period and the way that it's sent. I mean, just, oh, it'd be awesome. It'd be great, right? Or a new truck. My truck is ancient, <laughs> okay? It's, dinosaurs drove that thing when it first was created. It's not true, but it's old. Uh, there's just lots of things that in my heart I could be like, man, am I willing to say, Jesus, I love you more than any of that. I'm willing to give you what you ask of me because you gave it all for me. And say it again. Am I willing to say I love you more than that and I'm willing to give what you ask of me because you gave it all for me? It's not legalistic, it's freedom, Right? Take a look at this other passage in Luke. Turn over to chapter 18 with me. And as you're turning there, here's the question of this text. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus, man, tells this parable. It's a fan. You know Jesus when he tells stories. Like, he just gets the point across, right? Right away. A lot of times, it can, you, know, you, you don't really have to be super uber smart to get it either. Like, coming out of the gate, Jesus is like, hey, here's what I'm going to tell you this story. And then the Pharisees and the leaders, religious leaders, like, what? I don't get it. You're thick in the head because you've got no Holy Spirit. That's the problem, right? As we're reading this text, here's the question you and I ought to ask ourselves. Who or what do I trust the most? Who or what do I trust the most? Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, listen to it. He comes right out of the gate and tells you what you might possibly trust the most. Here's how Luke puts it, verse 9. 
He also told this parable, a story, to some who what? Trusted in themselves, right? That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Doesn't that make you feel sick in your stomach? You know, to think about those times. Now, let me flip this around. I asked you if it made you feel sick to your stomach, and you said yes because you thought of somebody who made you feel that way. Can I just ask you this? When was the last time you did this? Okay, because just to get it away from you thinking about how somebody else did done did you wrong. How easy is it for us to not look into the mirror of God's word and go, man, I, I got my act together, right? I, I, this, is, this is easy for us to fall into. This is an easy sin to fall into. It should be an easy sin to confess, right? Like, okay, yes. Yeah, I do fall into this thing, or I run headlong to this thing, where I'm like, yeah, I kind of got it all together, but that guy right there, that guy, no, that girl right there, you know what I mean? And you look, you know, and you look down your nose. You know, you don't adjust your glasses because you need to read, but you adjust them because you're, I see you. No, I actually can't see you over the top of my glasses, but this is what happened in this passage. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. You know this story, right? Read the rest of it with me. Follow along with me. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That was his prayer. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'll tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here's the thing. I think that all of us in this room have enough kind of sense of God's word of what's going on here, right? But I want you to look at this text a little bit differently, because actually this is the way the text is set up. Like, we already know the punchline, because Jesus leads with the punchline. But if you look at this a little bit different, at first glance, you would be tempted to see the Pharisee as the good guy. And you're like, no. No, Joe, that's heresy. We would not be tempted. You already told us the Pharisees are the bad guys. Oh, look at it. Look at the text and the way that it's written. The way that Luke sets this up, he's trying to tell you. This is the good Christian guy. This is the model citizen, right? He's got a list of good things that he's done. And then at the same time, you'd be tempted to look at the task. But if you just, no context, you saw these two guys standing in the church parking lot doing these things, I think you might be like, gosh, I saw that guy giving his tithe. I, I know that guy fasts twice a week. That dude's like on a spiritual roll. And the task collector's like, I got nothing. And you'd be tempted to say, that guy's really new to Christianity, if he's even saved at all, I'm not even quite sure, right? Uh, that's the way Luke is setting this up. The Pharisee, again, think about him. He's not like other sinners. He says that, I don't steal money. I don't cheat people. I don't sleep around, okay? Uh, in some regard, you almost get the sense that he's saying, I've never done these things. Almost the feeling you get from him. 
I don't coerce people to pay their taxes. I'm not a tax collector, not the IRS. I ain't going to call you tomorrow. And not the little mafia guy that's going to walk into the room and say, pay me the money. He's not that guy. And on top of that, it's not just the things that he's not done. It's not just the sins of omission that he hasn't done, right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's the things that he's actually committing. It's the things that he's doing. So he makes that list too. What's that list? What does he say? It's, um, I'm tithing and I'm fasting, right? But look at what he says about the tithing and the fasting. Because it's fascinating if you look at it. The way that he sets this up, he's saying... I've gone above and beyond. I've gone above and beyond. I fast twice as much as the law requires. Twice a week, not once a week. That's what the law requires. Once a week, he fasts twice a week. Oh, good Christian you. Stars on your chart in heaven, right? And what else did he do? He ties on his gross income everything that I get. Now, I will tell you, I believe as I read God's word that it this is a good practice. It's good to tithe on your gross income. Um, it's good to fast more than once a week. It's not only good for my belly, but it's really good for my spiritual health too, okay? Those are good things. That's the way that it's set up, is those are good things to do. Now, at the end of the day, the Pharisees' obedience had absolutely nothing to do with God's mercy. He actually despises the tax collector. He doesn't extend mercy. This is coming out of that other passage from Matthew and Luke that we can just see the natural outcome of this Pharisee, right? He despises the tax collector. He trusts in his own self-righteous good works. He, listen to this. How many times does he mention himself in this prayer? He mentions himself five times more than he mentions God. That's a good observation. So the thing is this, self-comparison and self-congratulation <coughs> I think are very sinful. Not that you shouldn't encourage yourself, please don't hear me. Self-comparison and self-congratulation typically flow out of a sin called pride and it's either arrogant pride or it's insecure pride, one of the two, whichever way you roll. Those two sins, self-comparison, self-congratulation, they're always a good sign that I'm trusting not in God's mercy, but I'm actually trusting in myself and my own works. This then allows me to look down my nose at someone else. When you examine now the tax collector and you think about him in, the, in, in this story, what's he like? He can't even lift his eyes up to heaven, right? Can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And all he does is he just utters this really simple prayer, asking God to be merciful to him because he's a sinner. This tax collector has absolutely no list of good deeds to trust in. All that he has is God's mercy. And Jesus says that that tax collector is going to be the one who is exalted. He is the one who gets justified in God's sight. Why? Because of who he is. He trusts in. So let me ask again, who do you trust in? And can I just say that the way that we handle our money, the way that we obey God when it comes to this issue of tithing, it's a direct indicator of who we trust and who we love the most. See, Jesus, once again, does not say that we should not tithe. In fact, once again, by way of implication, 
it appears again that tithing in this passage is actually a very good thing. If you follow that line that he set this up, like this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. Oh, flip it around. No, that guy's actually the bad guy because the good things he did, he did with the wrong heart because he loves the wrong things and the wrong person. Therefore, he trusts in the wrong things and the wrong person. You see the natural progression from love to trust. So when you tithe, who are you thinking about? When, when you tithe, when, when it comes to that point where you are to take the 10% off the top of what you bring in, who are you thinking about? Am I thinking about my worry of where I'm going to pay my bills or not? Am I thinking about my worry of whether I'm going to be able to have fun this month or not? Uh, am I going to think about whether I can pay the college tuitions or not? Or am I just going to start with going, God, I'm going to worship you first so that then everything else out of that will be worship as well. See, so here's the thing. I'm just going to, this is a bold statement, but when you do cut that tithe out, what you're saying to God is, I'm going to rewrite what you have said on this topic and I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to worship you the way that I want to rather the way, than the way that you have commanded me to. That's, I mean, if you have kids and you give your kids some constructions when you leave the house at night and you come back and you find that they rewrote those rules and they broke those rules, you instantaneously downside go, you have disrespected me. You don't trust the fact that when I put these rules in place, it was for your own good and all sorts of other implications, right? And hey, listen, at the end of the day, there's lots of good, seemingly good reasons that we might try to ignore God's word on this issue. But I would just say, when we ignore God's word on this issue, what we are doing is saying, God, I don't want you involved in the money that you have given me. What we're doing is we're acting like the, uh, the prodigal son who is like, hey, God, Hey, Dad, I really wish that you were dead right now so that you can't control my inheritance that I am looking forward to getting from you. So I wish that you would just give me my inheritance now and then stay out of my business so I can go blow it in the hog pen. That's, that's what's going on there, yeah. right? Again, as convicting as that is, it's helpful to know that we serve a God who foresaw all of this. He saw your sin before you sinned. And he still loves you. And he still loves me. That's nuts. It's hard for me to love people. And it's hard for me to trust people who hurt me. And yet God's like, hey, I love you. And what I want for you the most is to know that I love you. To experience that I love you. So that you might love me and trust me with your wealth. That's what worship is, a big piece of it. Saying, all right, God, I don't get this all figured out. I can't see tomorrow, and I can't see the next moment. I don't know how these bills are going to get paid. It's going to take me longer to pay off my debt. I might drive an older vehicle for quite a while. I might live on macaroni and cheese for a minute and not eat a ribeye steak that I love so much because I want to start with worshiping you so that I don't worship me. That's love and trust, right? Look at this last passage with me. Um, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. If you would turn there with me, you're going to turn to your right in your Bibles, or you're going to look at the screen in front of you, because it'll be there here in a few moments. And the question that I want us to ask as we look at Hebrews 
7, 1 through 10 is this question, who or what is superior? We first asked, who or what do I love the most? Then we asked, who or what do I trust the most? Now we ask, who or what do I believe is superior? Now here's the fascinating thing. If you just think about this from like a grammatical, our preachers always like to do three points where they kind of succeed each other and go in succession. All I did really was just kind of start with the first passage in the front of Matthew and you know, and just kind of work my way through. It's really fascinating how what I love the most and what I trust the most proves who I believe is superior. Like that's. And here's the other thing. Hebrews is where we're going to find the most condensed amount of talk from this word about the tithe. Okay. <coughs> Shows up seven times. Everybody go, whoa. The reason I asked you to say whoa is so that you remember to... Thank you, Jesus, for that. That was, I mean, you can't write that stuff in notes and hope to ever get there. So that was the Holy Spirit or the coffee I drank this morning or, yeah, thank you, Lord. (laughs) The Lord is good to us, right? Hebrews uh, 7, 1 through 10, seven times in this passage. (coughs) Follow along with me. This is a fascinating passage, by the way. I spend days here. I could spend days here so you know how much longer we're going to be here. I could spend days here. Listen, I think you'll see why. Actually, here's what's going to happen. At the end of me reading this, you're going to be like, what? And then you're going to see why we could spend days here. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, And what did he do? Blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Father Abraham. And to him, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a what? A tenth part of everything. He is first, who? Melchizedek is first by translation of his name. His name means first, right? This is my commentary as we go through. He's king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, which would be like the king of Jerusalem. He's a king of Salem. What, what does that mean? The king of peace. Are you making any connections yet? Anybody making any connections as we're, as we're reading that? Like it's, it's fascinating. Who else do we call king of righteousness? Who else do we call king of peace? Who else is first? Oh, man. That's powerful. It's really powerful. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembles the Son of God. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest for how long? Verse 4, see how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, father Abraham, he gave what? A tenth of the spoils. Now he shifts gears. And those descendants of Levi, who's Levi? We're going to come back to that. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, who are they? These are the pastors, the leaders of the the tribes of Israel, okay, um, in the Old Testament. 
those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So catch that, Levi and all these descendants who were priests, they were long after Abraham. Long after this episode with Abraham and Melchizedek. But this man, verse 6, this man who does not have his descent from them, he came before all them, he's first, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Who had the promises? Abraham had the promises, and he was blessed by a man named Melchizedek who was first, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, a man who had no other genealogy in the Bible other than just this one time being mentioned. Oh, like I said, I could spend days here. It is beyond dispute. There's no argument about this. None of us would argue about this, is what he's saying in verse 7. Beyond dispute, no argument that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So who did the blessing? Melchizedek, right? The one who was first, king of peace. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham's response to the blessing was a tithe. That was Abraham's response to Melchizedek for his blessing was a tithe. He goes on, he says, in the one case, he's making another argument now. I mean, he shifts gears so many times here. I, I still really believe this is probably the Apostle Paul or at least like his ghost writer. And there's a lot of people who are like, that can't be. Well, I'm her. You spend enough time in the Apostle Paul and read his stuff and it's like, dude is uncanny when it comes to making arguments about things. That's what he's doing here. Whether it's Paul or not, it doesn't matter. Sideline, I'm wasting time. In the one case, yes. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. What, is the thing, what do you think that means? What is testified that he lives? Who do you think lives? Jesus. Yeah, it's Sunday school answers are like great here because it fits every time. Verse 9, one might even say, here's another argument he has, one might even say that Levi himself, remember, when does Levi come in, in the range of things? He's, at the, he's, he's out past Abraham, right? Eons later. Levi himself, who receives tithes, actually paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. blows your mind. Like I said, the argumentation of the whole thing, just, you guys know I love to argue, so it's, oh, it just gets me going. I love it. And the fact that it points to Jesus so, so obviously. So what do you make to this, of this passage? What are we to make of it, right? All of its weird names, sevenfold mention of the tide of the tenth, so where a little bit of biblical history can be very helpful. So in this text, what you have is you have a dude named Melchizedek. I think the next screen will kind of give you a bit of a visual. Yeah, yeah. So um, what you have is you have, uh, you have Melchizedek, right? Um, then you have Abraham, Father Abraham. Then you have Levi. Then you have the priestly descendants of Levi. Question is, who are all these guys? I tried to kind of lead us through the reading of the text in a way that kind of, kind of fit together a little bit. Here's the thing, Melchizedek is basically this mysterious man in Genesis 14, whom our father Abraham, um, he meets. 
Father Abraham meets him immediately following this victorious battle with some really bad enemy kings. So I want you to keep in mind that that meetup between Abraham and Melchizedek, that happens long before Moses gives the law pertaining to tithes and offerings. Okay? Nonetheless, Melchizedek comes to Abraham. He blesses him verbally. And in, in the Genesis 14 account, I love this, when he comes, he doesn't just bless him verbally, he brings a gift. And what do you think Melchizedek's gift is? Broken bread and some wine. Did anybody make the connection? Some broken bread and some wine. Our practice of communion finds its way, way back there. In the midst of that, when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, shares his broken bread and this wine with him, what's Abraham's response? Abraham's response is not, oh, man, I gotta pay some debt. His response is not, I really don't, it's not really in my budget today. See, Abraham, Abraham isn't even in a place where he has to be like, hey, you know what the law tells me I need to do? Abraham, from a deep heart of worship, just says, oh, let me just give this to you. And he opens his hands and he gives. And it's powerful. It's a picture of our worship. In the historical lineup, Levi then comes into the picture many years later. Levi and his descendants would then make up the Levitical priesthood. They're basically the pastors of Israel, right? They're responsible for the spiritual leadership of God's people. These Levitical priests then would receive or collect the tithes and offerings from God's people, their brothers and their sisters, to cover the costs of ministry, including the living expenses of those priests. Now, I would say as a pastor and as one who planted a church where there were entire months that went by, the only tithe we received was from my wife and I. I don't say that to shame or guilt. I say it to simply say, this is my journey. I would say that in the midst of that, when I think about the way that God set up this economy to care for not only the preaching of his word and the ministering of his people, and the way that the family would come around and ensure that not only the practical budgetary needs of the church and the, and the gathering, but also that the pastor's family could eat and live in some relative security, that blows my mind because I haven't experienced that in nine years. So, I look forward to the day when God gets us there. Here's what it's done for me in those years. It's caused me to trust God even more. It's caused me to come to a place where I can say, you know, God is the one who provides for my needs. And I can say that authentically. And I can also say there were months, if not years, where I would wrestle with this bitterness, like, God, am I the only one Really? Who really catches a vision for planting a church that might reach the lost in our community? Am I the only one that catches that to a practical extent that I would be willing to give this way? And then my friend Eric would constantly, every year, send me this passage. You know. <laughs> he would send me this passage, and the passage was about Elijah crying on the side of the mountain. 
And God would always say, oh, you of little faith, basically. Like, I got people over here. I'll, I'll raise them up. So I trust. But I struggle. <laughs> well, there's something really special about this passage. Now, I'm way over time. I need to end this way without spending days. And I'm not saying I'm concluding yet, but uh, this is the conclusion before the conclusion. The author of Hebrews, I can't get away from it. Again, I can't spend days, but here we go. i got to get through this, right? The author of Hebrews, what he's doing in this passage is he's tying all of this history together. I love the way one of the commentators kind of painted it. He's like, imagine if you're the writer of Hebrews and nobody has ever had this thought. And the guy is writing Hebrews and he's like, Jesus, Father, you just tied this together for me. All of this from Abraham to Melchizedek to the broken bread and the wine and the broken body and the shed blood and our worship of God in our tithing. What does this all mean together? As Abraham ties to Melchizedek. God's people tithe to Levitical priest. And at the end of the day, because the Levitical priests were descendants of Abraham, according to verse 10, the still in his loins phrase, they all in effect paid dies to this one guy named Melchizedek. Why does that matter? Who flipping cares, right? You read me, you're like, okay. <laughs> what does it mean? The issue is an issue of superiority. The theme all throughout Hebrews is, oh, you got some priests? They're pretty good priests. Jesus is better. He's more superior. Oh, you got some kings? Oh, yeah, they're pretty good kings. Some are pretty bad kings, too. But you Jesus? Jesus is superior. He's better. Oh, you got Melchizedek. And he's a pretty good dude. Abraham paid tithes to that man. And there's so many symbols and types of Jesus in the story. Again, I can see the Hebrew writer just being like, oh, man. But you know what? In the rest of the chapter, guess who's better than Melchizedek? <coughs> Jesus. You know why Jesus is better? Because the way that he comes and blesses you and I is in his work at the cross. And the empty tomb. The promise of heaven. That's the blessing. That's what makes him superior. And here's the phrase I came across. When you and I tithe, when, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the giver is indicating that the receiver is superior. So when you and I give to a church, you're not given to me, although I benefit as a pastor on staff. What I'm more concerned about for you is that you, in your heart, in the way that you worship God, that you would say, Jesus, I love you, I trust you, you are far more superior. That's my heart, and I think that's the heart of this text. Amen? Now I want to conclude by praying before we go into worship. Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for blessing us so deeply in the work of the cross and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. 
Father, you, you literally did give it all so that we might move from that place of being sinners to saints. You came and you, you ransomed us by the power of your blood and the work of the cross, and you gave us the hope of heaven, a place where there's no more sin, no more crying, no more, no more sickness, no more brokenness. Father, help us to love you in the way that we worship you. In our giving. You've come and you've blessed us, so help us to love you, to trust you, and to not only just see and talk about how you are superior, but to actually behave and live like you are superior. Lord, we love you so much. We trust you. In Jesus' name. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.